Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Scrubbed In Show. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we have with us another amazing guest. We have with us Sam Shah, who I'm sure many of you know, who has far too many accolades to list. But most recently, he's one of the chief medical strategists at Newman, which is a men's health tech platform, as well as various clinical roles involved in digital innovation, digital development. I'm sure there's a lot of things we're going to touch on, but it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today, Sam. How are you? Welcome to the show. I'm great and really pleased to join you today. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, looking forward to our chat today. I'll see how, uh, how, where we go, how provocative we go, but thank you very much for asking me along. No, it's, it's, it's an absolute pleasure. So I'm trying to think, where do we start? And I think a good place is kind of early on in your career, kind of entering the, the world of clinical medicine, dentistry, even having you on the show as a, as a, as a dental background is, you know, we're, we're erring on the dark side, but hey-ho, <laughs> t- 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 tell us about dentistry and the dental world as to medicine. Let's start from there. Well, really, really interesting, actually. Good question. I don't think I know the answer to that, but I'll see what I can make up as we're talking about it. <laughs> so once upon a time, when I was very, very, very young, long, 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 long time ago, um, I got really interested in dentistry, probably a bit too early when I was about six. And my mm. brother-in-law was a dentist, uh, ended up becoming my business partner for a while. Um, and that sort of got me triggered around wanting to do this. And then I met the GP who originally delivered me when I was born. So he oh, delivered wow. me when I was born. And then I went and worked for this GP for a little while, trying to convince me to do medicine. Yeah. And I, I sort of got the allure of, of dentistry and thought, no, no, this is the thing I want to do. And then realized as I was doing it that, yes, it's really interesting, but I actually really like public health more than anything. So mm. kind of pivoted along the way. But yeah, originally dentistry, family influence. Um, and then along the way, realized that, yes, I sort of like it, but I like lots of other things too. And maybe I should have started off the other way around. Hmm. Tell us more about kind of being on the shop floor and then suddenly starting kind of embark on these different career options, the leadership roles that you started. So you mentioned earlier, the TPD role. What kind of sparked that within you and in your career journey? Well, I was really lucky that before I went to university, um, before I went to read dentistry, I already sort of had the, the beginnings of a career. I had worked in a number of other roles outside, a number of senior roles uh, mm. outside in retail technology, in financial services, in other parts of the system, doing things that are completely unrelated to healthcare. Um, I'd worked in another sector altogether. I'd worked in shipping, steel and oil as well. And um, so when I came into, uh, when I was an undergrad, I already started to get involved in medical and dental politics. I got involved in some sort of policy areas as well. Mm. Um, And even as a student, I was quite involved in in various things. And so that sort of probably sparked the interest. When I finished um, undergrad uh, sort of training and realized when I was sort of working in the environment, originally in primary care, Mm. that there's so much that needs fixing and changing. So sort of started getting involved at that point. And that's probably where the interest peaked. And um, and then I was really lucky enough to go into, when I went decided eventually to do specialist training, I decided to go into public health, in dental mm. public health and public health uh, medicine. And being in that environment, you get very involved in policy, strategy, you end up working with lots of other inspirational leaders, 
and and that's where it went from and as a result of that got very involved in different things whether it was working with the BDA and the BMA on Mm. things they were involved with as trade unions, whether it was working with the Department of Health as it was then, um, and NHS organizations on policy on primary care, um, and then sometimes on things like reorganization of services. So that's sort of where it all started from. Mm. And then my career took a bit of a pivot. I did my master's in public health and health economics, Mm. and I enjoyed the health economics dimension of my first master's Mm. and um, as a result of that decided to go and work in management consulting so I went off I left the system (laughs) against everyone was like no don't do this why are you leaving (laughs) don't leave training you need to be a trainee forever and then a consultant (laughs) actually I kind of want a life now Um, Mm. and decide to leave the system which I'm really glad I did. I'm really glad I went to management consulting. I learned so much from working in management consulting. I got to work on so many projects, everything from the origins of 111 and three-digit number, working on the merger of um, NHS hospital trusts, Mm. working on the business cases for what was a bit of a taboo subject, but private funding initiatives, so private finance initiatives for hospitals, redevelopment hospital sites, um, pathway redesign, the Marmot Review. So the Marmot Review was all about health inequalities, and I got to work on mm. that with, with that team between Department of Health, Michael Marmot. So that's kind of where I took a big pivot in my career, massive pivot to consulting. Um, enjoyed it, loved it, but then realized there was a ceiling. Back then, there was a ceiling. There was a ceiling, which mm. was I didn't have a CCT. So the CCT, okay. become a specialist. I wasn't a specialist. And it, back then, you know, almost 15 sort of years ago, roughly, it still mattered. And um, I then decided, okay, well, I should potentially go back and, and finish this thing, but it still was unsure. And thought, well, I'll get bored if I just do this. So decided to retrain in law at the time. So I went off and did a part-time law degree, which is great fun. Really enjoyed that. Really, really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed basically just learning how to advocate, how to formulate arguments, the, inter- the intersection between policy and law and culture and society um, and um, learn how to represent people at tribunal. So I went and sort of learned that and kind of came back into healthcare as well. So I sort of came back into public health, mm. um, was doing this law stuff, learning to advocate, representing doctors and dentists in various settings. So that was another pivot to my career. Uh, but as I came back into healthcare and into public health, the health system was changing. And a mm. really nice opportunity came along to become a Darcy Fellow. So I was one of the first few Darcy Fellows that was not a doctor. I was one of the first mm. three that wasn't a doctor. I was <laughs> a, um, as a dentist and went in. And what people soon realized, and my fellow Darcy's realized on the program, is that actually there's not much difference between doctors and dentists. And yeah. they soon start to realize that we're pretty much, very much the same in terms of our training, our experience, our background, and our ability to make a difference. So I was really lucky as a Darcy Fellow to be given some great projects, um, transformation of urgent emergency care, uh, the um, inception of a new health informatics platform in North London and things like that. So that was another pivot in my career. Um, But, you know, I could go on and on about pivots in my career and completely take you off track from the questions that you probably want to ask me. Definitely. (laughs) One of the the questions I wanted to ask was quite early on in your journey, you saw problems that you wanted to fix you want to get involved, you want to get your hands dirty per se. Why? A lot of people just let the world go on, they do their thing. Why go through that headache of getting involved, doing these things? 
yeah, I guess one, I was lucky enough to be able to do that. Like I was lucky enough that I was in a place where I'd seen things outside. So I'd seen things in the world of retail, financial services elsewhere. So that's one thing. And that's one set of problems around how do you reduce the friction for the citizen as a consumer of healthcare, right? And mm -hmm. we, we've come from a system where the NHS and everything around it is designed mm -hmm. around us as clinicians, the managers, policymakers, and the politicians. It's not really designed around the needs of the user. And coming from a world where everything was about the user and the customer, that was an interesting set of problems to try and create and solve. Um, and I really enjoyed doing it. And part of that, you know, was also about the part of the system I was in. So in public health, you're very much given projects to, uh, and they're often problems to solve. So that was kind of good. And that was that was a good way of applying a um, knowledge, some knowledge and skills. But the other part of it is, is also being in a place where it's quite difficult not to solve problems that you see. Mm. So whether it was um, representing people and solving their problems or working mm. on problems in the system, I guess I was lucky that I came from a space where I wasn't scared of saying what I wanted to say and trying to challenge it. Now, don't be wrong. It didn't always go to plan. People <laughs> don't always agree. And the system is kind of designed like a cartel that if you say something a bit different or you try and fix mm. a problem people don't need to fix, you soon find yourself on the wrong side of the problem. And, mm. and there were definitely times where, where that happened. Sometimes when there are big projects in the system, sometimes I was representing somebody, sometimes when it's about putting out a perspective on something that you just fundamentally think is wrong. Do you think though that having that sort of courage to voice your opinion, be it whatever it is, is your secret weapon though? Is what, when the person, when the company or person or startup or whatever it is that comes along, and they want to hear that. And that feedback, that viewpoint is actually golden. That is what is what's needed. And it's what what feels like is right. I think it's context as well in that it might feel like it's right to me. It may not feel like it's right to the recipient. So one thing mm. you sort of learn over time is how to frame, coach and position the message in a way that might be less offensive. Now, yes. there are times where... I'm not really going to put the shield in place. And I'll just say what I want, when I want, how I want. There are other times when it might need to be more sensitized and nuanced for the audience. And mm. that's not to say it's not authentic. It's just more put in a palatable form for them to get into the topic area. So is it a secret weapon? I'm not sure. Can it be stupidity mm. at times? Absolutely. <laughs> um, but is there lots that I sort of learn every single day i do i learn something new every single day even as at today and i certainly think it is important to try and say what you think and what you mean but perhaps put it in a way that is meaningful to the other person so they can respond to it in the best way possible and mm. um and that's important and and there are times where i might more so put out a view that i know is going to be difficult for someone to consume and, and there are times when I do that, especially when something's very politically important to me. Um, mm. And there are other times when I have to try and train and coach others, especially those that are in my own team, where I might be put out, put out things in a, in a form that's more questions. I'll ask them mm -hmm. questions about things. Um, and certainly when I did advocacy training, I was taught never ask a question unless I know the answer. Mm. Um, mm. And occasionally I would ask questions, hoping that I know the answer, but waiting to listen to see what comes back. I think, I think that's, that's something that we're never really taught, you see. 
communication skills, right? At university, we're, we're taught how to build rapport and deal with patients. We're never taught how do you communicate with the execs or the consultants coming along or the other people who aren't really healthcare professionals or patients at all. Um, and I think for our listeners who are looking to diversify their careers, that's such a golden nugget of, of um, advice that you've given about learning to adapt your communication based on sort of who it is, isn't it? But, you know, there's, look, there's three of us here that all have our own, you know, sort of cultural backgrounds. And there'll yeah. be a whole set of cultural and communication dynamics that we'll have grown up with in our various backgrounds forms that form part of the way we speak to people, the way that we interact, uh, our mm. authenticity, all of those mm. things. There's a whole system in which we operate that isn't just us. It's a whole set of other people that have their own cultures and backgrounds. And when we get the intersection of those cultures, there's nuances around how we have to cross those boundaries and communicate. They might be different to the way that we've been brought up, the communities we come from, the schools mm. we've gone to, the universities we've been part of, the groups we've been part of. And learning to navigate that in itself is a sort of a skill and art that we have to develop. Mm. Something we might do less of earlier on, we might have to do more of later on, but it does affect everything from the way in which we progress in our training, our longer term career progressions and the opportunities in front of us. And so I think learning to understand how other people accept and receive messages almost has to be as important as conveying the message in the first place. Hmm. Absolutely. That kind of reminds me of something slightly controversial, but I'm curious to hear your viewpoint on it. You mentioned kind of early on in your journey, you want to specialize, you need to get the CCT. Me and I was having a discussion recently off the back of a conversation where there seems to be a bit of annoyance and frustration with the senior clinicians missing out on these health tech opportunities that younger counterparts or less senior clinicians are taking. What is your thoughts on the matter? I'm sure you've probably had some sort of exposure. We're trying to navigate that, that minefield of, you know, we've, we've put in 10, 15 years that lucrative coaching or that advisory role obviously you're an advisor yourself so tell us a bit more about your thoughts on that just to, just to put into exact wording of what the the consultant said right it was i'm really experienced i've got a cct i've been a consultant for 10 years why the hell are these companies skipping me and going to you juniors <laughs> I love it. Right. I, love, I love the challenge, right? And, and, and I think what you have to say to people like me who are old consultants, which is like, well, actually, your minds are so contaminated and indoctrinated with the way of working. You're the wrong person to work in a startup or a scale up. You actually don't have the mindset, right? That's almost what you have to like challenge back because that's what's happened. We've got a whole group of people. They might be amazing specialists and consultants. And I'm sure most of my colleagues might be great at doing the thing that they've got their CCT in or working in the system, but they are great and designed to work in a system. Their propensity to change is going to be lower than the people who are now coming out of medical school, out of foundation training, who are less entrenched and grained in the system. Now, not to say that both can't be amazing at what they do. I'm sure they are. But if I was thinking about growing talent and the future of the system, like any management consulting firm, any law firm, any bank, you're better off quite often taking those people that have got less fixed ideas, who are willing probably to take slightly more risk, think outside the box and think more globally than perhaps those people who have been in the system and the way of working all their lives, who might find it more difficult to make that transition. Now, that's not to say 
for a moment mm. that it's not possible to traverse both. And I've got both. I've seen clinicians come out of the system that find it really difficult to adapt and change and they like a certain way of working. And I've got great colleagues who've been in the system a long time who can equally find a way to change because they have to. And necessity makes us all change. But if I was going to challenge the view, I don't think it's about length of service. <laughs> I don't think it's about length of time, what specialty you're in. It's about mindset. And pick the person with the mindset and propensity for change. And the length of time doesn't matter because I've got clinicians I've worked with who are fresh out of medical school, who already come in with the mindset of searching for solutions, analyzing problems in a different way and thinking globally in the way that they deal with something. And equally, I've got clinicians who have been working for 10, 15 years who really struggle to think outside of the lane that they've operated in. They've operated in the lane, which is, this is my bit. That's not for me. I need a specialist to do everything. And so, you know, you, I can see the benefits in both, but I like the fact that we shouldn't be constrained by length of service or specialty, mm. but the mindset. Can I think of a problem and a solution in a different way? And can I search for this in a really lateral way, thinking globally? You have said what we are thinking, by virtue, obviously, we can't go and vocalize all of that. But um, I agree in terms of length of service shouldn't naturally cater to I deserve to have X, Y, Z role with the, with the paycheck and kind of the, the glitz and glamour that comes with it. Saying that, I think it kind of leads on to the work you're doing with Newman. Tell us a bit more about you had this career in dentistry, you specialized, you're working within the NHS, kind of the digital development, emergency care, doing all of that stuff. Why all of a sudden do you kind of pivot again to kind of the, the world of health tech, med tech, men's health, you know, and, I, and these are big positions, right? You're, you're governing strategy and direction. Tell us about that, that flip. Yeah, look, and anything that um, any of us do will happen for a combination of reasons. Some of it's planned, some of it's unplanned, some of it's necessity some of its opportunity, and it'd be all of those things. Hmm. Most importantly, how interesting is it? And I've been really lucky. I've had some amazing roles in the system. I was a training program director in HEE. I was a, a DLAM, an NHS consultant in various forms. I was a national director of digital development in the NHS. Uh, I worked at the Department of International Trade for a bit. And all of these things are great, amazing opportunities, and they shape the, the, everything that happens. And I got to a point when COVID hit, that uh, I had to think differently about what I wanted to do, particularly because at that point, the Department of International, International Trade decided that everyone must be grounded <laughs> in London, so we won't be flying around the world talking about UK PLC, but you know, we we're gonna be in London. And that's not what I wanted to do. And I was super lucky that I first went to work in a private equity fund for a little bit, helping them on the creation of Health Hero, which has been was a great journey to help and be involved in in that, something I hadn't done. And then following that, I got uh, the opportunity to work with Newman and it sort of came about in a, in a roundabout way. And Newman was at that point a very much a startup in its early phases. Mm. And it had everything in there. It was a healthcare provider. It was early on. It was working outside of the NHS mm. and it also was developing its own tech. And it was a combination of lots of things I had done to date. But the most important thing was it was the opportunity to scale something that was going to make a different to part, part of the population. It was going to solve a type of health inequality, a type of health inequality. And in this case, a type of health inequality experienced by men. That was the first mm. thing. 
The second thing was, it was the opportunity to create an online healthcare provider. I'd been in the regulate, I'd been involved in the regulation of healthcare providers. I'd been involved in the commissioning of online healthcare providers. I've been involved in the design of the NHS's ability to launch online consultations, uh, the mm. creation of one-on-one -on -one online, all of those things. But to do it from scratch in another part of the system outside the NHS, I had not done. So mm. that's what came along. And then there was the ability, okay, I can actually create an electronic health record system from scratch. No legacy. I don't have to worry about yeah. EMIS System 1, TPP, <laughs> Cerna, Epic, Advanced, all of that. No, don't have to worry about any of that. I can create this thing from scratch. So once in a lifetime opportunity to do all yep. of those things in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise do was great. And it kind of brings together the ability to run a healthcare organization, develop it, strategize around its 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 roadmap, creation of platforms. And um, I like the team. I love the, working with the founder. We, we met, we had a chat, the team that was there, great people from different sectors. And, and those things together, working with the right team, with the right mindset, building mm. a team that you can develop and coach and creating an environment to treat the contingent in the population, all important things. How was it working in a startup compared to kind of the system? What was the difference? Was it like a breath of, breath of fresh air? Tell us about, about that difference, because I'm sure a lot of listeners are curious to learn more. Yeah. I mean, I'm lucky enough that I'd worked in small organizations once upon a time before. So it wasn't mm. completely new to me working in that kind of environment. But what was different about this, having been in the system a long time, is bearing in mind, when you're in the system, there's bureaucracy, there's layers of decision making. Everything takes time. Sometimes decisions even take two years to make, right? Mm. I can't just go along in the morning because I'd like to do this. And it happens, especially in the NHS, working in a startup. You go in in the morning, you're all sat around the table. There's a problem. You solve it around the table. By midday, you're launching the product <laughs> to solve that problem. And it's out there in the public domain with customers and patients going through it. And that's the big difference, the timing of it, the speed at which you do these things. Working with a product mindset, we talk about product and things being product led. You have to be very mm. new and you have to be citizen centric. Whereas in the health service, there'll be, you know, 10, 15 committees and decision-making processes. <laughs> From one end you've started, it's completely changed by the other end. There's politics involved. That doesn't exist. And, 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 and in a startup, there's the survival instinct. There's really recognizing what your customer patient needs are. And there's that balance between making something survive, solving those problems and making decisions rapidly. And that's the big thing. And, and when people switch, they're often not used to that. They're not used to managing risk in that way. Mm. So if you think in the, in the health service, there's so many committees and layers that risk is disaggregated. There's committees for everything. So the risk <laughs> isn't sat in one person. When you're an organization like a startup, especially certainly when I joined, I am the most senior clinician. I am responsible for all the medical decisions. I'm responsible for the regulation. At that mm. point, I was responsible for some of the operations. I'm responsible for evaluating everything from the technology through to the drug and the governance around all the patient pathways. That makes life easier because you're the person that's making a decision. Mm. That also makes life a bit risky as you're taking yeah. on all the risk. But if you can balance that and do it well, that's the big difference. You can make a difference to people quickly. Mm. 
Amazing, amazing. Sam, so listening to your journey, right, it's full of twists and turns. And then you ended up with saying it's a once in a lifetime opportunity that I had to take, right? So a lot of our listeners will be thinking at this stage, right, I don't know what I want to do in 10 years, in five years, right? We're taught at school, you decide at 16 what GCSEs, A-levels, you commit to their ST1, specialty training, become a consultant, buy a house, you retire and you die right it's like you've got no plans of dying anytime soon which is good <laughs> but tell us a little bit about how do you create opportunities really and how come you were just willing to just go there and then go there and then go and learn a little bit of law and then go learn public health and then out of nowhere decide to join a startup which is i know you've said some great things about startups but we know behind closed doors it's absolute mayhem <laughs> so tell us how you how does one find their feet Okay. First of all, you know, it won't suit everyone. Some people like the consistency and the stability, and that's important. And for some people, yes. the right thing will be they'll want a, uh, you know, some certainty around a job, a lifestyle, a certain way of being. And that's really mm. important. For some people, that's right. And we need people like that in the system. For others, they like a mixture of things. A portfolio might suit them more, where they have a main mm. job, but they might do a little bit of advisory stuff on the side every now and again, dipping in and out. And that's also great, and that's a good way to learn. Maybe people, perhaps like me, where you know I've already got a certain part of my life that works, like my, my clinical practices and all of those things. I've already experienced the world of the center, and I never really make a plan. It's like, well, what comes along now? And let me think about whether I want to do it or not. And it will be an evaluation of where you are, what risk appetite you have in your personal sort of life and whether you want to do it or not. And, and you'll, make it, you'll take a view on whether that's the thing that you want to do at that moment in time or not. And one my, my message to most people would be is we live in a time where the world is changing rapidly. Hmm. The global dynamics of power have moved. This nation, which is the United Kingdom, England, the NHS, is no longer sort of the center of the healthcare universe, right? Mm. The, 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 the power dynamics of healthcare completely change, where we've got influences from the East, from the Middle East, from the Far East, from the West, from Sub-Saharan Africa, from, uh, from the US, from parts of the UK, from the Nordics. And we have a different mix of healthcare and health system that's global. The opportunities available to any one of us are very different to where they were before. I mean, we can see it with the with doctors that are freshly graduating, where their world is no longer just about the UK and about the NHS. Their world is possibly about Australia, about New Zealand, yeah. about Canada, about the mm. rest of the world and the rest of the system. It's lots that we're not taught in medical dental school. We're not really taught about the world of pharma. We're not really taught about the law of medical, the, the world of medical law and that opportunity. We're not taught about careers in um, medical management consulting. We're not taught about the world of medical affairs and communications. There's mm. all other career pathways that are open, increasing. Think about the number of young clinicians that are involved in content creation and yeah. comms, right? There's a whole sector out there and that's growing. And, and certainly some of the work I do at Freud's is all about medical communication, healthcare communication and behavior change. And, and so my, my take on this is, is accept the opportunities will change. The value of those opportunities to us as individuals will change in our life course and be willing to adapt. Now, for some people, the adaption will be within the roles they're in. For mm. others, it'll be career pivots when it suits. And, and the most important thing is 
grow and learn with each change. If the opportunity is there, think about how it's going to add, enrich both your lives and the lives of others. And can you add value and will it add value to you? Now, occasionally those things will work because they work financially. They'll they'll have the right pay level attached. That means that you can do them, that you can pay the student loan, that you can pay the mortgage, that you can pay the school mm-hmm. fees, the bills, all these things. Other times it won't be. And it was constantly about judging those things. But the important thing is, is can you add value and will it add value in what you're doing? And and I don't mind if that's in the private sector, in health tech, in the public sector, in a blend of the two. I don't mm. mind if that's in another part of the world. Um, but I think we will have to we have the willingness to try these things if that's what we want. But the important thing is, is that it shouldn't be fixed. It, we mm. don't have to be on the conveyor belt. We're not in the factory. UK health systems almost teach us as undergrads to be in a factory. We become undergrads. We come out. We do some foundation training. We either go to general practice or do some specialty. We stay in specialty. We become consultants. We apply for excellence awards. Might become clinical <laughs> academics. Might go and become a college president or faculty chair. We don't have to do all these things. We can do those things, but we can do other things too. And it's okay to have a portfolio career. It's not a taboo. In actual fact, it'll probably enrich your ability to make a difference in the world and the system. But I would encourage people to have portfolio careers because I think it makes them less stuck in a system. Mm. That that feeling of hopelessness is much lower, that you're not entirely just stuck in one system, but you can work in multiple systems. Mm. Amazing. No, definitely. Amazing. And I think highlighting the fact that a career like yourself isn't for everyone. There is the ability to have that consistency, that stability, or a certain pathway. At the same time, like you mentioned, the, the world is more than the NHS and medicine. There are so many lateral things that can go into kind of affairs, medical law, negligence, communication, so much stuff out but, there. I mean, I mean, look at the president of the EU, a doctor, right, by background, yeah. you know, uh, and there are so many people like that in the world that have had inspiring and amazing careers. And, mm. and we should almost embrace that diversity in medicine and dentistry, that there are great people out there that have achieved amazing things who started off with clinical backgrounds. Mm. Um, and, and I would certainly, you know, say to people when thinking about those opportunities, where to find them, the first thing is talk to as many people as you can. Don't be scared of going on to LinkedIn, Twitter, go to conferences, talk to people, because generally I tend to find when someone comes up to me and says, do you mind having a chat? I'll be like, yeah, of course I don't mind. Let's have a chat. Let's yeah. get a coffee in. Let's have a call in. Let's do it. And and most people you'll find will be open to doing that. Some people say to me, can I do a placement with you? I'm like, yeah, of course you can. Let's organize a placement. Yeah. And and you'll be so surprised. People out there listening will be surprised that most people that you approach will be looking for a way to help you. Sometimes they'll be to help you themselves. Sometimes they'll connect to somebody else. Sometimes they'll just give you some guidance. Sometimes they might just give you their story that might inspire you. But don't be worried about talking to people. No, definitely and off the back of that, how would you say senior clinicians should approach it? You know, someone's been in the system 10, 15 years, leading departments, you know, r- running the unit. Because sometimes I feel they don't, they see it as a step down when they message someone on LinkedIn or kind of connect with someone like yourself. How do you tell them to kind of overcome that barrier to kind of do the advisory work, the kind of this leadership at startups? I guess there's two things there. And I've talked to people who are looking to make the career jump. I've talked to people who are worried about it. I've talked to people who it's in complete uncertainty for them. And first thing I would say is talk to other people who you know, often your friends, people you're connected Mm. to, uh, people like me, 
and just have a chat about it. And there are lots okay. of really good consultant colleagues who I've met with for a coffee, just to explain what's it like. Because as you mentioned earlier, Anz, you know, there is that chaos behind you know closed doors. Of course there is. Every single day there's a crisis to solve as well. <laughs> and you're involved with everything from whether it's fundraising through to sorting out some, you know, data breach that's happened through to dealing with an issue where, you know, you've got a staffing crisis. It all happens. And part of it is learning to uh, to both embrace that uncertainty, but solve it as well. But talk to people. That's the first thing. Mm. And when you go into these organizations, remember, you're going to be going in as a fairly senior person, as a person with lots of experience, person that's senior in their career as a clinician, and people will look up to you and you'll be re willing to go in and sometimes sort of be the parent in that environment and 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 certainly in a startup i'm quite old in the startup right like lots of people are a lot younger than me in the startup and, and you have to be used to willing to sort of have a nurturing role as well sometimes so uh you know that's important when you go into that space but the the most important thing to, to colleagues out there who are thinking about this is don't be worried about it be willing to talk to people and look for the blend that's right for you. Don't jump into the first thing. Think about whether you want to be in an NHS facing startup or a private sector facing startup or both. Think about whether you want to be in a tech facing startup or a, a sort of clinical services startup, or again, a blend of the two. What's the skill set you bring? Are you bringing clinical leadership governance skill set? Are you bringing more of a kind of a health tech ideation design skill set? Be willing to be an omnipresent person. So someone that's yeah. sort of willing to do anything. You have to be fairly adaptable, which will be everything from clinical governance and, uh, and registration with a regulator through to dealing with data privacy, because often it falls to the clinician to do this. Sometimes you might be the person that's also sort of doing the advocacy outbound. You've got to be the face of the organization as a clinician and be willing yeah. to do things. And are you willing to write PR briefs? Are you willing to talk to the media? Are you willing to write posts and blogs which might not be scientific papers might are you willing to do some clinical research and you have to think about what you're willing to do and what the team is if you go into a startup that's very early stage what's their stability as a startup are you willing to go with the uncertainty they may not have their next funding round are you going to do everything everything from seeing patient yourself being the strategist being the leader involved in the tech which I have to do right at the beginning, yeah. all, all the way through to you might, you know, sort of be in a team that's much more established. These are all questions you have to ask and toy with. Um, and how much you do or don't want to get involved would determine where you go to. But you have to think about those things. Talk to people you know, talk to different recruiters, talk to headhunters, think about people you know that have made the transition. And everything from do you want to work from a to, for a P backed health tech provider? through to a VC-backed health tech provider, mm. the, the, the atmosphere will be very different. Yeah. No, I think that, that was actually very good advice, especially for people who are to take the leap. I think just having that conversation for people that have been there, done it, that are in the positions you're looking to entertain. I think it boils down to that. It's not really that complicated if you, if you think about it. You mentioned funding, fundraising, and, and, and I know Newman's raised tens of millions from someone that's kind of been early on in that journey and we know the rise of health tech companies, there's a new one spinning off every day, right? What have you noticed that's been working and what are kind of companies doing that's making them fall short? Because is it commercializing? Is it securing the NHS contracts? Kind of from your experience, what have you know, it's a big question. It can be an episode on its own, but just, you know, for our health tech founders, because I know they listen to these as well. 
Yeah, I think it's a really, really difficult place. So the first thing is credit to all the health tech founders out there that are just trying to make a difference. And it's not easy. And things I'm noticing. First thing I'm noticing is whilst the NHS is more volatile at the moment and funding is constrained in the NHS, mm. funders are finding it more difficult to back companies that are purely aligned to the NHS because mm. obviously the certainty of those companies surviving and succeeding is is a little bit lower than it would have been in, in days gone by. So that's kind of the first thing. Then there's the ability for those companies to scale. Have they demonstrated anything that shows they can scale both within the UK, but beyond the UK. Mm. And what is the experience like of the founding team? Not just the founder, but the people around them, the people advising them. What's that mix like? Because that's going to make a difference. On the other side, there's also the challenge of funders. Funders are finding it really difficult right now. Funders that were made promises by LPs and others, those promises yeah. are now failing. So those VCs are really now finding it hard and they're finding it hard to have the conversation. So almost a bit of bit of space for the VCs too, that they're struggling too at the moment in this current climate with the global economy where it is. Where they are in their own funding cycle will, will change the dynamics of the conversation they're having with, with founders around what they can and can't uh, fund. And then the ability to follow on. I'm, I'm certainly finding some VCs naturally are going to try and provide the follow on to existing portfolio companies that might be willing, might be able to succeed. So that's a whole other area. The other thing is, is what they're working on. Given the short term nature and cycle uh, that we're in, things that have got a long, you know, a very long lead time are more difficult to fund, right? Not mm -hmm. impossible, but it's more difficult. So thinking in a different way about funding. And I would certainly say to people starting out now, don't think about just traditional places of funding, but think globally. Think about institutional investors, high net worth individuals, mm. uh, look to places that weren't traditional places of funding. Um, and that is important. Don't just rely on the traditional place. And remember, when you speak to one VC, you're really speaking to them all because that sort of gossip network amongst VCs is very strong. They all talk to each other. So get, get really good at telling your story. Get really good at explaining what you do in a succinct way because you may only have like 30 seconds to get the message across mm. and be clear about what the value is that you're adding and what the value is you're going to create. And if you can't get that right, it's going to be really hard. So learn how to tell that story quickly, easily in a way that demonstrates value and your capability. Yes, Sam. So I've got a question now, right? Sure. All of those sure. things that you've said, right? Uh, people who've got loads of ideas and stuff. University doesn't teach this. School doesn't teach this. Where the hell do you learn all of this stuff? Where do you learn storytelling, really communicating, good. all of this presenting, uh, networking? Where on earth do you learn all of this? I think you just have to do it. You just have to do it. It's not for everyone. But if you've even got an inkling about it, you've got to just try. You've got to start having conversations. You've got to just try these things. And, and, and it is being vulnerable. And things will go wrong. And you'll make mistakes. I remember, remember presenting once about clinical leadership really early on. It's the worst presentation I've <laughs> ever given in my life. Like it was awful. I still remember it. I still remember it to this day. And um, it was awful. The 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 room had lost interest. I had lost interest. The whole thing was just a disaster, right? And it was. I'm really glad I had that awful experience. Because afterwards, I went to talk to a couple of people about how do I get this right? What do I have to do? And and just learning, just that, the ability yeah. to present properly mm. and nicely. And it just happened from do more of it, but also think about the different audiences you're working with and how you tailor it for them from a very academic audience, very clinical audience, a very tech audience, that sort of thing. The networking thing is never easy, 
And again, it's about gauging the environment. But the one thing is, is try and find people, identify with them, um, ask some interesting questions, um, learn about them. And that that's, that's, you know, something, and it's hard. And the more you do, the more often you go to these things, it happens. But don't be scared of things and don't be scared of going to places. It's not a natural thing. Like doctors and dentists are very good at talking to each other in these groups, but avoid basically yeah. forming that clique and try and work out how you're going to talk to people and, and recognize that other people have got amazing skill sets for other sectors, lots for us to learn from and be willing mm -hmm. to go there and ask questions which you're going to learn from. No, Absolutely. Definitely. I think um, there's no better way than doing it yourself. I, right. I completely agree. I, you know, I wish I was there in that presentation because you're very well spoken. <laughs> you, you achieve so it's nice to see. It's nice to see the come up, right? The, the come up. Um, last question before we we, we kind of wrap up is, what, what does the future hold for you? What are you looking to do? You know, plan to stay with Newman, more advisory roles. Tell us a bit more, so you know people can kind of follow the journey and understand what you're thinking. Well, look, Newman's still got a long way to go and I've got lots and lots of problems in men's health and digital health still mm. to focus on. So it'll be a long time before before <laughs> that is uh, that comes to an end. But the other things I like working on, I like doing is I still like working with my academic colleagues at UCL, Ulster and UCLan on mm. digital health. And that's really important to me, which is helping uh, grow and develop and learn from the next cohort and cadre of people interested in digital health from all sorts of sectors and that's really fun and i'll keep on doing more of that and that's everything from thinking about the next ways of researching and evaluating digital health products and services all mm. the way through to thinking about how we train and develop the next cohort of clinicians tech uh, technologists uh, marketeers around the world of digital health so that's one bit the, the things I do with Freud's around behavior change is super important. Mm. How do we bring together behavior change and health tech and change the messaging in the world of how to make that better? And, and again, doing more things in that space uh, is important as can you do them. The thing I often don't talk about is the stuff I like doing in law. So um, I still am very involved in law. I'm very involved in health tech law, IP law, mm. human rights law. And certainly as time goes on, I will be doing more things and agitating further and for anyone that follows me online they see i have no shortage of views i put out there especially <laughs> when people are facing injustices and i've been reading about a case recently of a junior doctor and i don't really mm. care what the individual has written or not written and it's controversial and there are things about it that we may or may not agree with what's mm. what matters to me is whether that person has been given a fair process and a fair mechanism. And I'm very happy to put an opinion out there on that and 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 one which touches on the law relating to doctors and dentists. No, I think that's interesting. Absolutely. That's quite, quite noble. I think it feels like a full circle moment kind of giving back. But um, it's interesting because, you know, law feels like it's a whole different world on, on its own and you're kind of tying it together. Uh, but yeah, it is, you know, I, I, I remember watching Suits and I wanted to be a lawyer and I wanted to leave medicine and I wanted to move to America. Like, I'm that guy, I watch a TV show and then, you know, I want to give up and kind of pursue that avenue. But um, thank you, Sam, for taking the time out. We've, we've learned a lot. You've, you've had an incredible journey today. You're, you continuously, you know, inspire um, and motivate and you're, you're super active and you're kind of paving the way for a lot of clinicians that don't really know what to do, where to go, what they can do with a clinical background. Um, mm. essentially leave the system. Um, so thank you for that. 
you know, my, my message to all our, everyone out there listening, right? Be militant, be curious, and keep learning. Love it. Oh, wow. Love it. I think we're going to use that as a title. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sam.